So we're live. Welcome to Ask the Therapist. My name is Robin Axelrod. I'm an occupational therapist. I introduced myself in the past, but I'll reintroduce myself. Um, I am a professor at Hofstra University. I teach pediatric coursework for occupational therapists. I also am a certified early intervention provider, and I provide services for children zero to three. And I'm joined with Hafsa Siroka. She's a licensed social worker. And she's joined with us this week. Um, Hafsa has experience with many different diagnoses, and including uh, mental illness, including trauma, depression, anxiety. And she has experience working with adults, teens, and children and their families. So we want to welcome Kasia this week to the show. Hey, Kasia. Hi, Robin. Thanks for having me. Okay. So glad that you're joining us. And this week we're going to talk about pacifiers and blankies. And pacifiers and blankies are items that are, you know, commonplace in most homes with small children, but they're also controversial items that come up a lot in therapy and in discussions with parents about their best use, how often they should be used, are they good for your child, are they bad for the child. And today we're going to start off from an occupational therapy standpoint as well as from a social work standpoint, what our views are in terms of these items, pacifiers and blankies or blankets. Uh, or binkies, or whatever you want to call those items, um, most safe, however you want to call them. So in terms of a pacifier, a pacifier is really something that is calming for a lot of children. Um, they use it to calm themselves to sleep. They use it to calm themselves when they get upset. They use it as a comforting item a lot of the time, and some children don't like the pacifier. They don't like to have it in their mouth, but some children get addicted to the pacifier and it becomes an issue as they age. So as an occupational therapist, that pacifier is giving a soothing feeling to the child, a feeling of comfort, because every time the child sucks on the pacifier, it's giving them deep proprioceptive input, which is really calming to their mouth and their oral cavity. And that calms them down, that deep input calms them, relaxes them, soothes them, and that can, you know, be helpful when your child is really having a hard time calming themselves. The problem becomes when the parents rely on that pacifier. So, child's upset, you know, they're angry, give them the pacifier. A child wants something in a store, you don't want to buy it for them, give them the pacifier. So, the parents use it as a plug instead of using it just for calming purposes when needed. They use it all the time, almost like a crutch, and they rely on it. And if, you know, God forbid, they're out with their child and they forget their pacifier, oh my goodness, what is going to happen? Um, panic, you know? So um, some children need more than one pacifier. Some need two, three, four. There's even a pacifier tree. If you go to Bar Park where children graduate from using their pacifiers and they hang them on the tree, believe it or not. There are a lot of pacifiers there. So it's definitely something that is part of development for young children and we want to make sure that it's being used in the right way, not just being used as a crutch, not just being used as a babysitter, but just being used as needed um, to calm a child down as needed. 
So, Kasia, any thoughts about this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so funny. funny. I remember my mom always told the story about how attached I was to my pacifier until I was like four years old, and how it totally ruined my teeth. Um, so I was, you know, very sort of. Um, I, I thought a lot about this with my son because he had a pacifier, um, and yeah, it it can be very very soothing, um, and you know, it kind of acts as. Um, sort of a comforting type of thing for, for children, in particular, you know, when their parents are not around. It can act as a kind of transitional object. So if you ever took a, a class in, in Psychology 101, right, there's, there are objects like security blankets and classifiers that, that young children will use. Um, and they use that as kind of a way to transition um, when their parents are um, not there. There's a period where they kind of start to learn that they are not part of their part of their parent, essentially, um, that they're separate from them. So it can provide a lot of comfort um, to have this other thing, this object. Um, so, you know, it's very, very common. Yeah, Kasia, would you estimate how much money is spent on pacifiers uh, in, the, in the U.S., I have the number. <laughs> so approximately, according to Google, approximately $21.9 million U.S. dollars are spent each year on pacifiers alone. That's a lot of money spent on pacifiers. Definitely <laughs> um, parents are buying those pacifiers. Um, but the, it, the pacifier does have some benefits. So before we you know, talk about the negative effects of the pacifier, um, it definitely acts to lower the risk of SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome. Um, so a pacifier can help a child by decreasing that risk because they're sucking as it's in their mouth, so that works on their breathing, so they, they won't stop breathing um, when they're on their tummy if they're on their belly. And also it's satisfying your suck reflex, it's encouraging that self-soothing. So there are some positive benefits of the pacifier but I'm also going to talk about like some negative effects, of course. Um, so in terms of therapists, right, occupational therapists, speech therapists, um, those that work in early intervention, we tend to recommend that the pacifier be used only until about one to one and a half years of age. And the reason is because the child gets really attached to that pacifier. As they get older, it's harder to leave them. It becomes that you know, item they need with them all the time, and sometimes they need multiple pacifiers, like I said, and it really has some adverse effects on their teeth. So they may have an open mouth posture, which means that they're walking around with their mouth open, and that's really, really bad for um, their teeth. It's also bad because they may start drooling if their mouth is open a lot of the time. So it definitely has a negative effect on their teeth. They can have, you know, poor dental growth. Their teeth can grow in um, you know, out of whack or asymmetrical, and it you know ha can have a negative effect on their teeth growth. It also can have a negative effect on their speech because think about it. You know, you're putting a plug in a child's mouth. Why are they going to speak? And if they do speak with the pacifier in, their speech is going to be, you know, labored. It's going to be difficult for them to speak. They're going to choose not to speak, and it's also going to be unclear. So definitely affects their teeth and their speech, also their language. And um, also, you know, prolonged use of a pacifier can lead to increased risk for ear infections. 
Now, increased risk of ear infections can also affect development by causing hearing loss, um, and you know that in turn affects their speech. So, those are some negative um, effects of the pacifier. In addition, it can also have a negative effect on their sucking and their feeding patterns because they have this immature sucking pattern that develops from the pacifier, and they're not able to eat off a spoon or eat foods with a spoon or a fork in the way that they should. So that's something to think about. Um, so I mean, definitely something to think about that there are pros and cons with using a pacifier. Um, pacifiers should really be, you know, gone by one to one and a half years of age. They're okay, I would say, under a year, but as the child ages, again, it gets very difficult. They may hold on to that as being that transitional object. And um, it can often be replaced with something else, like a, you know, a teddy bear or a blanket, um, you know, as part of to replace that item for them. Um, Kasia, any thoughts about blankets? What do you feel about blankets? Well, you, blankets like pacifiers are very, very common, um, especially you know, um, as kids sort of are growing into you know, babies are growing into sort of toddlers. Um, and they they provide a tremendous amount of comfort. Um, there's really nothing that I can think of that that's wrong with them, right? I think that parents can get frustrated because you know they're, they're schlepping these things around that are uh, can get filthy and, and come with them everywhere, and you know um, it can create a lot of again kind of panic if you don't have it sometimes, right? But they're using this as a as a way to comfort themselves. It almost takes on the qualities of the caregiver, you know, to have the security blanket or teddy or whatever it is that, the, you know, they feel um, really close and connected to. And a lot of the time they're, they're going to grow out of it, um, you know, and it, it can, I, I think that also, you know, pacifiers and security blankets, it can be difficult to kind of get kids to transition out of it. Um, but, you know, I think it's okay to kind of set limits around it and, and, and you know, um, you know, if you want to try to, like, wean them at an appropriate time, um, you know, let them know, you know, let's, let's keep this here in the house where it won't get dirty or, you know, things like that. Um, and, you know, get the kids involved in trying to find maybe a special place in the house where this object can stay while, they, while they're playing or where they can sit, like maybe in the stroller or something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and but but eventually that they're gonna kind of out. You know, you don't you don't see um, a lot of teenagers walking around with security blankets, right? <laughs> eventually, kids do tend to, as they get older, um, feel you know more secure in their attachments. It's really the the fact that they're learning to be independent, but they want to feel the security of you know having that um, either that caregiver or this representation of the caregiver. So the the, the, the the blanket's going to kind of take on that role. It's going to represent the comfort and, um, you know, the security of your caregiver. Um, you know, certainly less to worry about in terms of dental hygiene and other things, yeah. I think. Right, right, right. Do you, I mean, have you seen, a lot of parents are nervous about 
taking away a pacifier or a blanket cold turkey. Like, they're, you know, they're, they're like, not sure, should they take it away cold turkey? Should they, you know, one day just hide all the pacifiers or should they do it gradually? <laughs> should they speak to their children about it, you know, about what they're doing or should they just hide them all? Any yeah, thoughts on that? you put your kid in it, you know? Right. right. Um, then I think that that can be a gentle way to, to approach kind of that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I... I remember when um, when my son was get, starting to get rid of the pacifier, I said, you know, it was around the time I was transitioning him to, like, a big boy bed, and so, and so probably too late, much later than you, <laughs> than, than you would recommend weaning him. But, right. You know, part, part of what I did was I just said, you know, if you're, you know, and kids want, little, little kids want to be big, right? right? So I just kind of said, you know, big, big boys don't, suck on pacifiers so if you can go seven days without sucking on a pacifier then you can get this big boy bed and every night we would put a sticker on a sticker chart and it helps him to kind of get used to this idea of you know not having it but also having something to look forward to and having something to kind of work towards and and it felt good for him to kind of get get to this place where he can get something at the end that represented him kind of growing and getting bigger Um, because little kids want to be as big as possible Right. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. I feel like also a lot of the times, um, you know, when they're older, like you said, it's easier to explain that to them and have a discussion with them. But when they're younger, especially if they have younger siblings like babies that are under them that have a pacifier, they want to be the baby. You know, they want to act like the baby. Um, Any tips on that? Um, they want, yeah, sometimes, sometimes they want to act like, like a baby, but I think also you can incentivize kind of being bigger, and, um, you know, I, I love just kind of, um, you know, just the use of, um, being really kind of, uh, it's like effective praise is what it is, you just kind of, every time they do something that demonstrates that they're being big and mature, like, you really kind of just praise them for it and say, wow, that was such a great thing that you did, and it's such a you know, you're such a big boy, you're such a big girl, I'm so proud of you, and they kind of like that, you know? Right. Um, they kind of, they, young kids really, really respond really well to that. A lot of times with little kids, we're giving them a lot of, like, you know, feedback, don't do this, don't do that, you know, stop that, right? But when we give them, like, this kind of attention, effective praise, wow, that was great what you did, I was so, you know, I was, I was so proud of you, you know, that they, they can start to really, really look for that, and so... Um, it can be really useful mm-hmm. um, in, in getting kids to kind of get on board a little bit more. Not perfect right. science, but... <laughs> right, right. Maybe having them be the helper, like bringing diapers or yeah. whatever, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. What about transitions? Like, talking about this, what about transitions? Like, you know, um, getting into a new bed, like going from a crib to a bed or going from... Um, you know, being an only child to a sibling. Any ideas for parents that are going to have that transition for their child? Well, I mean, I think every, you know, kids are very individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, it's really going to depend on your, on your child. Some kids are really excited to have a sibling and really, like, happy. Um, and some kids are really crushed, mm-hmm. um, crushed by it. And I think that any, any one of those things can be, you know, totally fine for the kid because it's just a big, it's a big change. Um, right. But I, but I, I, I do think that if you, 
Um, it's, so I, I guess I guess what so I guess what the question is is you know kind of you you know your kid to some extent and you know to some degree what works and what doesn't work for them. Yeah. Um, but it's really very very individual, I think. Uh-huh. So depending on the child's personality and their learning type, I guess you would talk to them maybe, you know, before bed every night about the change that's going to happen or maybe, you know, um, the, you know, if a new baby's coming, maybe buy them a doll that they could practice on um, playing with. Um, and uh, just, you know, talking about that change, reading books about the change. And... Um, while we're at it, we should talk about you know another transition that kids go through at that age, which is toilet training, which is a major transition for them. Um, you know, toilet training is like that dreaded time for parents, but yet such an important time for the child. And I feel like it, you know parents really have to work on their own anxiety with that transition and their own anxiety with toilet training as a whole, because that really affects the child's outcome or the child's. Um, thoughts about the whole toilet training process. What are your thoughts about that? Um, well, I, I mean, I think that, you know, yeah. I, I think, and again, just every every family kind of has sort of uh, different dynamics. How many siblings are in the family? Is this like kind of the, just the first child? Is this like the tenth child, right? Like, um, what other things are kind of going on around it, right? Um, you know, so so realistically speaking, I think that you know it can it can be challenging. I think it can be helpful if you have a you know if you have a system that that works, um, you know, and you have some something that you used before that um, you can put into place that feels comfortable and familiar. Um, that can be helpful in alleviating some anxiety from the parents' end. Um, right. But you know, the kind of kids are kids are gonna kind of follow your lead a lot of the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like if the parents are anxious, the child's gonna be anxious, and also I feel like um, you know, if parents are frustrated, the child gets frustrated, the child may give up. Um, on the whole training process, and also in terms of their, you know, cognitive abilities and their understanding, some children are ready earlier than others, and a lot of parents want their children trained early because it's easier for them, because they don't want to buy diapers, they don't want to change diapers, but really every child's um, level and their um, readiness for toilet training it comes at a different stage, and you really have to understand if your child's ready or not. Um, I think the most important part is if they're willing, if they're interested and motivated to do it. So it could be that they watched a sibling go to the bathroom and that's motivating for them or they, you know, saw a classmate go to the bathroom and that was, you know, in playgroup and that was motivating for them. Or it could just be that, you know, um, they have a doll or they read a book about it and that's, you know, exciting for them. But if a child's not interested and not motivated, parents sometimes pressure that child and then it does not have a good outcome. The children end up progressing or they end up having accidents purposely. Um, and I feel like you really need to wait until your child is, you know, wanting to um, be trained. You know, once they're motivated, once they're eager, usually the training process is pretty quick. Um, it could take a few days, you know. But if a child is not interested and they don't want to and they're being pressured by the parent or by the teacher, 
feel like that usually has a negative outcome. So, Robin, what should what should parents look for? So, if you're if you're looking for um, some some signs or or some cues as to when a child is demonstrating that they are starting to become ready. Right. So, um, so the first thing really is when they're uncomfortable being wet, like when they show, you know, um, real dislike in getting, you know, in feeling wet in their diaper when they take off their diaper. Um, you know, when they notice that they're going to the bathroom, so they'll tell you, you know, I'm going to the bathroom now, or, I'm, you know, I have to pee, or I'm peeing. So they're, they're aware that they need the bathroom, and also they dislike being wet. Um, so some children with sensory issues that are hypersensitive to being wet can train earlier than those that are typical because it really, really bothers them when they're wet, even a little wet. Um, you know, in that sense, they want to get trained right away because they can't stand having a wet diaper on them. But um, children, you know, who don't like to be wet are usually the first ones to get trained. And I tell parents that, you know, sometimes parents say, well, I'm not ready. You know, my child's ready, but I'm not ready. And I think that's just honestly an excuse that parents make. They don't want to deal with that huge transition and the potential of having some wet spots on their floor for a couple of days. Um, parents need to take that advantage. When the child is ready, they need to just do it at that point. They should not wait because they may miss that opportunity and then that opportunity may be lost. The child will say, oh, well, mom's okay with me in diapers. You know, I don't need to be trained right now. And, the, you know, they may not be ready for another six months or longer. And then the parent wants and the child's not ready. So it's important that if your child is showing signs or wants to be trained, just do it. Do it in that moment, you know, do it right away. You know, when you have, you know, when they have off or take off from work if you're able to or on weekends even, um, but have them trained as soon as they show some interest. Also, they have to make that connection. Um, most children do not have the brain-bowel-bladder connection until about two and a half years of age, and before that would be too early for them to be trained. Some children are mature, and that happens at an earlier age. So children that have that at an earlier age could be trained earlier, but some children may have it at a later age, and they're not ready at two and a half. And that's okay. Uh, every child's different, like you said. So really, uh, when the child understands that, you know, I, I need to go to the bathroom means I need to go to the bathroom, and that's what it feels like, that's something that, um, you know, every child is specific to and, and you know, every child's different in when they make that connection, when they understand that. Um, those are some things to look for. And are there any cues that the child may not be ready? Um, yeah, so, yeah, so, I mean, if a child's not motivated, like if they're, per, you know, if they're purposely having an accident and then, like, showing, you know, the parents on purpose that they did it or they're doing it out of spite, um, they're definitely not ready. If a child is refusing to take off their diaper, they're definitely not ready. Um, and if a child not, doesn't want to sit on the potty or toilet, they're definitely not ready. Um, and also, if they're not understanding that when they're getting wet. So most children will say, like, you know, I'm wet or I made or I have to make. But if a child's not verbalizing at all about that, then maybe they don't get that connection yet. Maybe they haven't made that connection yet, and then they wouldn't be ready. There definitely is a level of cognitive understanding with that, that, you know, that connection. So if a child is developmentally delayed and has some cognitive deficits, 
they may be late in toilet training or delayed in the toilet training process, which is okay, but again, the parents shouldn't pressure them until they're ready. They shouldn't pressure them at all, but definitely not until, you know, they understand the concept of it. And I feel like siblings do a good job at modeling for their, you know, for their, for their younger siblings, older siblings, for their younger siblings. You know, usually the younger kids want to be like their older siblings. So I think that's a good thing. Um, I think it should be a non-pressured process because it could be very stressful for parent and for child. Yeah, and and um, if somebody sort of thinks that their child is ready and, and you know, they're not, they're, they're, they're noticing that they're not, do they just kind of stop, wait? What, what do you suggest? Sorry, Kasia, could you just repeat that? Sure. If if they if somebody you know if a parent well-meaning parent tries to, to potty train their child and then they they realize that they aren't ready, what do you suggest? Do you suggest that they just kind of like stop, you know, put the yeah. back on and wait, or is there anything else that they could do in the meantime yeah. to acclimate them to this idea? So I mean, you can I I would put the diapers back on and you know and then just you know don't be demanding about it. Just you know um, approach the you know, the subject as if it, you know, it's a very calm thing that, you know, no pressure, like it never happened, and then read them books about it, talk to them about it, point out when, you know, when people go to the bathroom in the house or a playgroup, you know, make it a, a story for them so they know what's coming, so they're more prepared when, you know, when you attempt in the future. And then um, when you do start again, you know, make it a positive experience, let them take the lead, um, sometimes parents can make it fun by putting targets in the toilet or getting them a, you know, a nice seat to sit on on the toilet or whatever, a sticker chart, whatever it may be, um, incentivize it as well just so it's a fun thing and not a scary thing because it could be a really frightening thing for a child, especially early on. Yeah, and, and do you have any tips for parents who are trying, whose kids are ready um, but are, are frightened by having to, to use the bathroom? The, uh, the children are frightened, yeah. So um, a lot of the times it's talking to them about it, calming them to it. I mean, there are some sensory strategies that you could use to calm them, like deep massage to their arms and their legs or putting a weighted toy over their shoulders or a weighted blanket on their lap that could calm them, um, you know, just so they are calm and that they can go to the bathroom. A lot of kids hold in their pee, you know, they, they refuse to make because they're scared. So again, like easing that whole process, making them comfortable with it, calming them down, and going at their pace. Maybe they're not ready. Maybe you know they need to just keep that diaper on for a little longer. Um, but just going, you know, according to their pace, so, you know, low anxiety, low stress, and also giving positive praise, like you said, like you know, making small things, you know, big things. So any small thing that they do you know, giving praise for that. You know, they sat on the toilet and they didn't make, okay, but you could still give them praise for that. So even small steps. Flushing the toilet can be a problem as well. A lot of kids are afraid of flushing the toilet or the toilet flushing sound. So we can work with that. You know, I wouldn't necessarily work with the toilet flushing while they're, you know, going to the bathroom. I would do it, like, as an activity. You know, like, let's flush the toilet and let's see how long we can stay in the bathroom for while it flushes, like can we stay in for a second, can we stay in for five seconds, and then build up that tolerance so that over time they're more accustomed to it, it doesn't phase them, and it doesn't bother them. Because um, I know that flushing the toilet definitely, for those with sensory 
um, issues can definitely be difficult to hear. Yeah, so like a slow, kind of like a slow acclimation or exposure to, yeah. you know, like just so that they, you know, give them a window of tolerance, a, a, a small nugget of time that they can actually tolerate doing it and then maybe expanding on that every every time a little bit. Yeah, it's, you know, we call it, I mean, I don't know how what the term is in social work terms, but in OT terms, we call it like desensitization, um, basically like desensitizing them to that defensiveness that they have by providing them with the input in small dosages so that they can acclimate to it in the future. Yeah. So and, and yeah, so similarly, there's a concept of exposure, right, of kind of like, you know, um, exposing someone to something that they are fearful of, but in, in a way that they can tolerate and then just kind of building on that because as they as they kind of do it for a certain length of time, they develop more power. And you just you keep, you continue to build on that mm-hmm. um, so that they develop more and more tolerance. And then finally, at the end, you tolerate the whole experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Okay. So, Khasi, it was great speaking with you. Um, hopefully, we'll speak again next Monday at 9 p.m. Yeah, probably. Thank you for having mm-hmm. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Good night, everyone. Good night.